0: So hello everyone again. I am still delighted to be here. Can you hear me all right in the back? Good. I sometimes get a slightly lower voice. People tell me particularly when I'm saying something important. So if that's happening, signal me. I won't be offended, but I will raise my voice. So the topic of my talk today is on holding conditions lightly. Um. Part of that is because many of us um, take this kind of artificial distinction of the old year wrapping up and the new year happening to take stock of our own lives, of the world around us, and the conditions that inform our lives. I um, personally find that holding the conditions within my own life and the conditions around me very lightly helps me to navigate them, to shift them, and to just relate to my own life with kind of a more peaceful, more equanimous way of being. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. It's it's what's on my heart. Um, I guess the first thing to say is... From an early Buddhist perspective, clinging is a very important concept, grasping. And clinging clamps down on conditions. It clamps down on possibilities. One example might be a farmer or a gardener who grasps on tightly to the seeds instead of letting them go into the earth. Or starts pulling at the shoots to make them come out a little bit faster from the ground. You know how well that works, right? (laughs) So obviously this prevents or inhibits growth and um, just like that even an attitude that's imbued with grasping can inhibit potentiality, the potential of those seeds, those conditions in our lives that attitude might not be as um, obvious as holding on tightly. It could be more like a pot that's too small for the seedling. And it prevents the plant from flowering to its full potential. So conditions, conditionality is kind of a big word. I'm gonna talk about what I mean by it. There's internal conditions, internal to us, and there's external ones. climate, whether it be social, political, environmental, relational. Internal conditions are like those seeds I was talking about. And one way of seeing the external conditions is a little bit more like the weather. I'm going to talk about the external first for a few minutes. So I'll bring in another farmer as an analogy, and... This is an ancient Chinese story most of you have heard, I'm sure, more than once. It it was something like this. There's a farmer who has a family in ancient China, and his horse runs away. And everyone around him says, oh, that's terrible, what bad luck. As the story goes, the horse comes back, bringing a beautiful wild stallion with it. All the neighbors say, Wow, what good fortune. The farmer just kind of nods and says, Maybe. Maybe. A little bit later, the farmer's son tries to tame the horse, the new one, and is thrown and breaks his leg. Oh, that's terrible, isn't it? All the neighbors say. Farmer, again, noncommittal. And wouldn't you know that within the year, the Chinese government comes through to draft all the able-bodied young men to the army. And who is the only young man spared in that village? The son with the broken leg. So this story is often used, I'm sure you've heard it, to talk about how we don't necessarily know what is for the best and what is for the worst. And I do think that's an important lesson but I'm actually going to use it to illustrate something a little bit different, which is two of the eight worldly winds, And those are gain and loss. And there are other sets of them too. These are external conditions that inform how we see ourselves and how we see the world often. The other six are pleasure and pain, praise and blame, and success and failure, which is often translated as fame and disrepute. So you can pick whichever version you like better. It's talking about the same stuff. The Buddha talks about these as forces that every single one of us will encounter in our lives. Doesn't matter how enlightened you are, how good you are, sooner or later, you're gonna end up on the upside and the downside of each one of those forces. They're great examples of conditions to hold lightly. So, it's easier said than done, right? I'm going to talk a little bit about how the Buddha talks about holding these forces. In the early Buddhist teachings, the suttas of the Pali Canon, the Buddha talks about three ways to perceive conditions in our lives, and for that matter, everything else, and those are in Pali, Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha. Anicca means impermanent, flux, subject to change. Anatta means impersonal or out of our control, and at the deepest levels it means selflessness, and Dukkha It's kind of an automatopoeia, refers to the aspect of suffering that is inherent in experience, especially experience we grab onto. So he talks about the difference between how a mature practitioner relates to the eight worldly winds and how your average person walking around, in this case ancient India, relates to the worldly winds. (coughs) And this is from the Anguttrava Nikaya, The Numerical Discourses of the Buddha. It says, um, bhikkhus, that's monks. An uninstructed worldling meets gain and loss, disrepute and fame, blame and praise, pleasure and pain. So does an instructed disciple, meaning someone with maturity of practice. What is the distinction, the disparity, and the difference between how these people meet these forces? And he goes on to say, when someone of the world just normally meets with gain, it obsesses their mind. Does that sound familiar? It obsesses their mind. Loss obsesses their mind. Fame or success obsesses, disrepute or failure obsesses. Same with pleasure and pain. This person is attracted by gain and repelled by loss. This is the story of our lives, right? We want the good stuff, not so much the bad stuff. Thus involved with attraction and repulsion, this person is not freed from birth, old age, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and anguish. In other words, they're not freed from suffering. He goes on to say when mature practitioner what is called here a disciple meets with each one of these forces they reflect this way for example this gain this windfall I've met is impermanent clinging to it means I am subject to suffering and it is subject to change it is subject to not being mine Me, myself, or belonging to me. In that way, gain does not obsess the disciple-instructed person, nor does loss. It's like that understanding is a buffer from the worldly winds, from the shifts around us. So that's it for the reading. I'm happy to provide citations for anyone here who's of a scholarly bent. What the Buddha is speaking about are some of the core teachings from an early Buddhist perspective, which is that the way we perceive reality, the way we perceive our experience, can shift how we relate to it in our hearts. If we really understand that it's not personal that things change, that loss happens, that things go away. There's a certain kind of healthy detachment that can result from that. And this is an understanding, in my experience, that simply matures with practice, with looking at this over and over again. And there can also be a real upside to this. When things are really crappy, guess what? Things do change. It's gonna happen. So there's a certain kind of faith that can be developed in this process over time of seeing that and orienting to the flux we live within, rather than our ideas about what we want to grasp onto or fixate onto. It brings a certain kind of freedom So these same three perceptions apply to our internal conditions, not just fame and blame, praise and praise and blame, I'm sorry. and um, loss, gain, pleasure, pain. Internal conditions can be widely varied, right? Our genetics, our psychological makeup, our family history, our cognitive capacity, um, emotional. Dispositions and the countless, countless, many, many, many accretions of thousands of responses, attitudes, thoughts, habits that just build up and become the way we orient over time. On one level, all of that's deeply personal, right? It's who I am when I walk through the world, it's what people see, it's how I relate. But on another level, all of these impulses gather and form in all of us. Every single one of us. In that sense, it's impersonal. We're all heirs to our volitions, our actions. We're all heirs to our karma. These actions include those of body, speech, mind, and our conditions also include things that the Buddha did not include in karma, such as accidents, illness, and the external circumstances of culture. Right. This can get to be a heavy topic for many people. and. Um, For me, it's been really important to learn that Buddhism isn't about focusing on the past and how we got to where we are. That's the realm of psychological work or history, both of which are valuable. To the extent that reflecting back is important, it's to learn. Guilt is considered to be an entirely useless emotion in Buddhism. I'm going to say that again. Guilt is an entirely useless emotion in Buddhism. Remorse and wanting to shift because we've learned something, that's entirely different. But that doesn't have that self-blaming in it. It's just, could have done that differently? Note to self, move forward. So in that sense, Buddhism is about the now. And forward-looking, not in the sense of planning, but in the sense of setting the seeds, cultivating conditions now that might unfold into something beautiful, possible, different, or just an openness to whatever arises. The only way to cultivate, in my own experience, is to cultivate awareness of this moment. Lucid awareness, Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it. Mindfulness, it's often called. That allows wiser choices. And to notice the conditions in our lives is one of the most powerful applications of mindfulness I've experienced. Holding conditions lightly... Choosing wisely is much easier to do if one notices how one's relationship is to those conditions. And I'm going to give an example of this because it's a little bit tricky what I just said. Um, So acknowledging the sort of impersonal, changeable nature of our own conditioning process can be as simple as acknowledging the process of aging or acknowledging the process of learning. If we notice that this is true not just for us, that we are influenced by all these forces that are either habitual, past, or beyond our control, But we can also notice that this is true of every other single human being that we interact with. Everybody. That, um, for me, helps me to be non-judgmental and to develop compassion for behavior that I might otherwise find very difficult to receive or even to see. So a little bit of a story or an illustration that's sometimes used in my scene is um, let's say you're in a boat in a stream, okay? Not fast-moving streams, you chilling out fishing or something, right? And all of a sudden from behind you, another boat strikes the boat you're in. How one responds will depend on the context. Maybe... One feels a flash of anger and then turns around and sees that that's an empty boat that just hit you. Nobody to get angry at in that boat. This is kind of like being the recipient of actions without direct intentions. And often the way we tangle up with each other is in this realm. Yes, there are people out there who intend harm, there are people out there who intend badly, but most people, most of the time, we're stepping on each other's toes without quite realizing that we're doing it. Our boats get unmoored a little bit and hit somebody else's. One of my Tibetan teachers used to say It was powerful. She had us reflect regularly um, that others' unskillful actions are often the result of their own pain, their own unmet needs, their own kind of tragic response to what wasn't working for them in their lives. It rarely has all that much to do about the person in front of them completely. Each of us walk through lives with these filters of our past, of our conditions. Seeing that can help compassion and holding things lightly. And seeing the, sometimes we actually have the gift of seeing why someone is acting as they're acting. And this is a simple story, and it's one of two authors. I actually cannot remember which, so I'm not going to say either name. But um, this author tells the story of being on a train. I think it might have been a subway in New York. And a uh, father and two kids board the train. And it's kind of late at night. He's tired. It's mostly empty train. And the kids are just going bananas. They're running around. They're yelling. They're, like, hopping on seats. And they're, they're being really sort of what the, this person considered to be out of control. And the father is just sort of, like, spaced out, sitting in a chair and on one of the seats and just not doing anything. And so this author asks the father, hey, what's going on with these kids? Can you calm them down? And the father looks at the author with sort of this deadpan, sad expression and says, I'm so sorry. Their mother just died. And we're coming home from the hospital. And I, I don't know how to handle it, and I guess they don't either. And the annoyance of that author went poof, Right? and immediately shifted to compassion of helping these people. It was no longer just a few annoying people on a train, right? It's a family in grief. So recognizing reality as it is, being open and curious, It can free us up to choose wisely how to use our emotional energy, how to meet others. And it can also, recognizing reality as it is, can help to adjust emotional energy and expectations. The um, Buddhist, the Tibetan Buddhist, Sage, I will say, Tsongkhapa, writes about this in his treatise on the middle way. He advises a simple acceptance of the way things are in any given moment. And he says something to the effect of, I will side with those who stay in harmony with reality. Because in an argument with reality, reality always wins. It's that simple. What Tsongkhapa is pointing to, or at least my interpretation of it, is that relating to experience without fighting it is a skillful relationship to experience. Projecting my wishes, my desires, my agendas onto the moment does not change what that moment is, it merely changes how much of that moment I'm seeing clearly. That's the only thing that shifts. And ironically, that can bring me further away from being in contact with anything that might shift. Because I'm caught up in my own conceptual framework about what it might be instead of meeting it. There's another contemporary story about this. I believe I first saw this in Reader's Digest many years ago. <laughs> I haven't read Reader's Digest in many years. It went something like this. I've actually heard other Dharma teachers talk about this as well. It's, um, it's nighttime, and it's a captain. there's a captain of this big warship. He's navigating. And a blip comes up on his radar that he's on a collision course with another ship. And so he gets on the radio and he gives his ID and he said, please move. And the person on the other end says, you should move. (laughs) And he gets a little hot under the collar and he said, this is Captain blah, blah, blah of this and this ship. We are a warship. We're too big to turn easily. Please move. And um, the other person says, I'm sorry, we can't move. You will have to shift direction. And at this point, the captain's mad. He's fuming. And he sort of belts up, move or we will have to take action. And the response on the other end is, sir, we are a lighthouse. <laughs> 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 Arguing with reality <laughs> doesn't work. <laughs> so... Checking in with what the actual situation is can be really helpful for navigating it, especially if you're expecting the situation to move for you.
1: Um,
0: What this doesn't mean, and I want to emphasize this, is it doesn't mean accepting circumstances passively as they are, especially if the conditions aren't beneficial or healthy, okay? So there's a difference between coming into acceptance with what is and being a doormat for everything around us. What I'm talking about is discerning what is with the queer seeing. Another water boat analogy here. We need to know we're at a fork in the river before we can choose to take one fork or the other. So accepting what reality is actually, what we're meeting with our bodies, our senses, our hearts, can actually help in making that decision, can clarify what those forks in the river are. Noticing and acting when we have choices in Buddhism is so key in influencing either the conditions in here or the conditions out beyond this room and this brings to a very kind of brings me to a very important set of conditions from a Buddhist perspective which is intentions which Mako mentioned that we're teaching about intentions later today right that's a very important sort of class of conditions within Buddhism. They're special because volition connects us to what's most important to us, our deepest intentions. It also um, is important to have awareness of the moment to moment intentions that arise and pass away in every moment of experience. These are called sometimes impulses. There's fancy poly words for them, which you'll learn if you come this afternoon. But these little impulses are the sum. They're the little tiny building blocks of the karma of our lives. That's the accretion that builds up proclivity, disposition, character. our intentions are also conditioned, right? If I'm born and raised in California, I will have a fundamentally different notion of what kind of intentions are possible than if I'm born and raised in rural Tibet or rural Mexico. Yet, even though they are conditioned, just like everything else in our experience is conditioned, the Buddha was very clear He said on many occasions in the early teachings that we do have free will to intend, to choose, even within this vast flux of karma that we live in. In fact, the principle of karma, which the literal translation is action, is based on this idea. If there were no free will, then we couldn't accrue more karma. I want to illustrate the relationship between conditionality and karma, something like this. Okay, imagine you're on that river again, or you're watching someone on it, and one of those forks in the river led to whitewater rapids. Okay? So roiling, moving very quickly. You can imagine a skilled kayaker just flowing down those rapids, right? In this analogy. The river is the conditioning that flows through each person's body and mind. Many, many conditions beyond our control. Yet, if she's attentive, and especially if she's experienced in the ways of rivers, she can make very skillful choices about how to navigate down that river. Avoiding the pitfalls and having a really good time in the process, being spun into eddies and cascading down. all of that this is kind of how the practice of noticing mind and intentions and heart can help cultivate a healthy relationship to what's happening right now we have influence we don't have control but we've got influence and that influence can help us skillfully navigate towards our own futures So, holding conditions lightly, allowing them to change is easier when we see how we're relating to them. There are some ways of relating to conditions that can help us, that have certainly helped me relate to conditions of our hearts, minds, even society or relationships, in lighthearted and skillful ways. I talked before about Anicca, Anatta, Dukkha, impermanent nature of things, the uncontrollable or selfless nature and the simple fact that clinging to them or pushing them away can result in suffering. There, are, there is another way of several, I'm sure there are many other ways, we're going to talk about one other way of, of kind of helping to navigate lightly. And that is to set a compass by something bigger than my own self-centered concern. This has been huge for me in my own practice. There's um, a really simple way of doing that in this tradition, for those of you who practice as Buddhists, and not just as or Zen practitioners, and not just as meditation. <coughs> and that is to take deep refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I know that that is, you know, it's a chant that's done every now and then, people talk about it, it can be very formulaic. It can also be a very, very deep practice. So just to riff on kind of how um, it's evolved for me personally, taking refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in the potentiality of mind and heart, the potentiality of awakening as well as in the possibility that was shown as this long, long lineage was founded. But it's more to take refuge in that potentiality every day, that that's actually there, even if we can't see it. It's a way of, as a chaplain, when I go home at night, (coughs) laying all the grief and problems I hear down at the lap of the Buddha, giving it back to something that embodies pure potential. Setting compass by the Dharma is to allow a faith in something bigger than myself to unfold through. To trust in the capacity of the unfolding of things that can happen without Mostly without our conscious will, the way a cut heals, right? And to trust that cultivating that within each heart and mind gives us that influence to hone the skillfulness in our lives. And taking refuge in Sangha, I find it delightful that there are large bodies of people all over this world who are dedicating their time, sometimes their whole lives, purely for the purpose of becoming more awake, kinder, more compassionate, more joyful, and more present with each other. something really beautiful. You hear about all kinds of people in this world, but these large numbers of people in this tradition and many others who simply live their lives with that kind of aspiration, that kind of showing up, don't really make the news very often. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of them. So, whatever your compass is, we encourage you to take nourishment from it. Allow yourself to reflect on it it can pop us back into a bigger picture than whatever might be the want of the day or the aversion of the day, fear, whatever that is. This kind of big picture awareness can become really powerful over time. In the years of my practice, I've found myself just trusting in a fundamental okayness, it's a contentment that recognizes that there's just not much necessary to be happy. Cultivating that kind of contentment and trust means listening to contentment and trust when they arrive and allowing them to be guideposts So, those are my thoughts on capacities that allow each person ways of relating to conditions lightly. And also allow our lives to unfold in a more beneficial, kinder, gentler way. Buddha talked about this process as the path of cultivation and that the maturing of it is independence in the dharma. The maturity of not clinging to anything in the world. So I wish for all of you um, hints of the contentment and joy and ease that come from relaxing into the maturing in your own lives. Thank you. We have a couple of minutes for questions. Almost to the wire here. So, if anyone has any burning questions, comments, or complaints? Now's the time. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I just think
1: about um, what if. Um,
0: Sorry, what was the last thing you said? It, it led
1: to a decision. Mm-hmm. You know, if I just hadn't done this, then that wouldn't have happened. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's, not, it's not so easy when a decision that's made results in harm itself or others. Is it? So, um. I th- I find it helpful for me in decisions like that, or in memories like that, to draw a distinction between blaming myself and learning from it. And to be just, we're all just little people. We really are. And to hold it with as much compassion as possible. And, you know, be loving towards that. Thank you for your comment. Yes? When you were speaking of taking refuge, you mentioned, you said, I could, didn't hear what you said about the sangha other than knowing that there are people that are practicing diligently mm-hmm. and taking up, waking up as their primary path. Yes. And I wonder if you have anything else to say. There's, there's so much to say on that topic. It could be its own Dharma talk. Um, I, the main thing I will say is um, there's at least one sutta reference in which Ananda... Um, asks the Buddha if spiritual friendship is half of the holy life. And the Buddha turns to Ananda and says, No, it is the whole of the holy life. Can't emphasize too much how important it is to cultivate relationships, spiritual friendships around us. They can be our rock tumblers, they can be our support, they can be our challenges... They're always useful, even when they're not fun. And it's a true gift to have spiritual friendship that spans decades. That's all I have to say right now. But I'm sure you could add more if you like. (laughs) To maybe one more. Yes.
1: So, uh, where do you do your chaplain work in the hospital?
0: At this point, yes, I'm in my final phase of professional training, which involves actually seeing people in hospitals.
1: And um, how is a chaplain um, received, if they're Buddhist, and say the patient is is Christian? I I know it's kind of late in their
0: life, I I just want to know, just being with them, right? And not not postulating things. So in general, a good chaplain does not postulate things. Mm -hmm. Now, there are exceptions to that. If one is asked to conduct a ritual, Mm or if you're asked to preach, which I probably would never be, but if you are, (laughs) um, you do it upon request. But the model in this country, especially in California, where I'm based is of interfaith chaplaincy. That's actually mandated to provide spiritual care for people of all religions. Mm -hmm. So unless one is an ordained Catholic priest or a rabbi, in which case it's very difficult to sort of be anonymous, um, most of us are encouraged not to say what our religious affiliation is, And to simply be there with the person and help them uncover what's most important and meaningful for them in that situation. Mm -hmm. And because I was raised Christian, it's actually fairly easy for me to do that with people of the Judeo-Christian background. Mm -hmm. I don't feel any conflict with it. Mm -hmm. And if I'm asked, I will be honest about who I am and what I am. But you would be surprised how few people actually ever ask that question (laughs) because usually what's happening is so much more intense than a philosophical or religious question they're just hurting and they want support Mm -hmm. thank you for the question Mm I think it's time to wrap up but thank you all so much for your Mm -hmm. attention it's a delight to be back